This is Andrew Sandlin, Easy Chair number 429, October the 12th, 1999. Tonight we're doing something a little unusual. Uh, R.J. Rushduni, Mark Rushduni, and I are going to talk about the misrepresentation that Cal Seedon has suffered as a very controversial ministry. Any ministry that stands totally for the authority of the Word of God and against the compromise of the modern age is likely to be misrepresented. Uh, as a result of this, there are a number of people who are perhaps sincere, and yet because they only hear one side of the story, misunderstand greatly what our position is. So we decided tonight, especially to interview uh, Calcedon's founder and chairman of the board, R.J. Rushduni, and uh, our president, Mark Rushduni, and I will uh, also chime in in discussing some of these important issues. Rush, would you sort of set the uh, topic out for us by discussing how frequently uh, your position has been represented, misrepresented rather, and, and misunderstood over the years? Yes. I'm not surprised by the fact because when I was young, Dr. Cornelius Van Til was being subjected to the same treatment. It was as though he were the enemy of the faith, the great perverter of Reformed theology. In fact, one so-called Reformed thinker, William Maslink, developed a nickname even among those who were anti-Van Til of uh, Weeping Willie Maslink <laughs> because he was always shedding crocodile tears over what uh, Van Til was saying. And supposedly, according to him, Van Til's thinking was one monstrous misrepresentation of the Reformed faith from beginning to end. Well, Maslink is gone and forgotten now. It's been a long time since I've en uh, encountered anyone who knew Maslink today. And Van Til is more important than ever. All the same, it is important to correct errors that arise. And certainly, from the beginning, we have been subject, uh, subjected to very, very serious misrepresentations, misquotations, deliberate falsifications by men who should know better. A lot of this has been in tabloid publications by Arminians, but some have been in uh, very popular books published in great quantities and seemingly setting forth the truth. One of the most notable of these was by uh, Hal Lindsey, a leader in antinomian uh, circles. Yeah, it's not surprising that a ministry that stands so forthrightly for the truth will be attacked, for example, by secularists. Uh, we know they're God-hating covenant breakers, and we're frequently misrepresented in the, uh, in the major media. But when people professing to be Christians and within the church do it, uh, that's another matter. 
Uh, let's jump right away into the what is perhaps the leading point at which we're slandered, and there's no there's no other word for it yes. than slandered, and that is because we believe so strongly in the abiding authority of the law to govern every area of life. Uh, it is sometimes held that we believe that men are saved by law keeping or justified uh, by the works of the law. And of course that's a total misrepresentation of what we believe, a total misrepresentation of what you've said. And Rush, as you indicated, actually Hal Lindsey is one of the uh, leading ones uh, to make such an accusation. Yes. Well, as I indicated, more than one person has. The best-known name has been Hal Lindsey, who has not only accused me of perverting the gospel, but also of being anti-Semitic. Steve Schlissel challenged him to show a single sentence in which either charge was true. He and David Brown wrote Hal Lindsey and the Restoration of the Jews, and, uh, for example, on page 18, Lindsay writes, under the subheading, The Dominionist Views of the Law, Mr. Lindsay quotes R.J. Rushtuni, the patriarch of modern Reconstructionism, as follows. So central is the law to God that the demands of the law are fulfilled as the necessary condition of grace. Lindsay immediately adds, in other words, we can, we earn grace by keeping the law. Talk about putting the cart before the horse. Any attempt to earn grace destroys its very meaning. Well, Lindsay goes on, to, or rather, Schlissel goes on to say, now, if Reverend Rushtuni actually believed what is pre predicated uh, of him by Mr. Lindsay, that would be grim indeed, a very definite attempt, uh, return to medieval Romanism. However, after reading Rushtuni's original source several times, it appears that he was deliberately and seriously misrepresented. This is what Reverend Rushtuni wrote. So central is the law to God that the demands of the law are fulfilled as the necessary condition of grace. And God fulfills the demands of the law on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as the new Adam, head of the new humanity, kept the law perfectly to set forth the obedience of the new race or humanity, and died on the cross as the sinless Lamb of God to fulfill the requirements of the law against sinners." Unquote. Note well that the emphasis uh, is Rashtunis. That is, thus, it is Mr. Lindsay who has destroyed the meaning of Reverend Rashtuni's words. For while Rashtuni set forth Christ as the one who had set us free from the curses of the law, Mr. Lindsay makes him out to say that we must earn our grace. To make matters worse, a little later in the same chapter, Mr. Lindsay 
as if he were setting forth the true biblical position as over against Reconstructionists says, quoting, we owed God perfect obedience to the law. We couldn't pay, so Jesus died in our place. Lindsay concludes, quote, the Reconstructionist failure to correctly interpret an issue as clearly revealed in the New Testament as law and grace is a major doctrinal error. The Apostle Paul declared this error serious enough to call those uh, who taught it accursed. Mr. Lindsay would do well to remember that the Apostle also called accursed those who misrepresented his teachings, Romans 3.8. Well, I could continue with this, but that's enough. What Hal Lindsey did was to misquote me deliberately. He took a sentence and left out an entire section of it and attached it to another sentence to make me say that salvation was by law. When I was actually asserting the biblical position of salvation by the grace of God. Now, that was a deliberate misquotation. It was spotted by others, such as Greg Bonson and Ken Gentry, in their book, The House Divided, page 378. Well, with these attentions called to his very serious misquotation, deliberate misquotation, did Hal Lindsey ever correct himself? I never heard from him. He continued to assert his position to charge us with falsifying the gospel and so on and on. Now, this has been the character of the criticisms of Christian Reconstruction. They have been lies, deliberate lies. At different times, uh, tabloid papers put out by such people were sent to me with long, long articles attacking me as denying the meaning of grace. All of these quoting Lindsay <laughs> rather than my book. So we have had a deliberate program of misrepresentation. And in no instance have any of these men apologized for their misrepresentation. It has been deliberate. It has been with the intention of misrepresentation, and it constitutes, in my view, a serious sin in the sight of God. Rush, how would we assess the character of a man who would deliberately, intentionally slander and misrepresent, and uh, when that uh, misrepresentation was made public would refuse to repent? As well, I have read the scripture, it seems as though uh, such man is in uh, a dire condition before God indeed. Yes, he is in serious violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness.
to set the record straight, uh, let's discuss now, uh, just in summary form, what we do believe about the law. Well, we can say, first of all, that the law is a transcription of God's eternal character. The yeah. law is unchangeable because God That's is right. unchangeable, and it's both Old and New Testaments are authoritative. Well, we are very clearly told that the law is fulfilled for us by Jesus Christ. So we stand in the presence of God, not in our righteousness, but his righteousness. Nothing else can represent the gospel. So the law is not an instrument of justification, but it's certainly of our justification, but it certainly is an instrument of our sanctification. Exactly. We are to grow in grace by our obedience to the law. We do not receive grace because we are supposedly saved by the law. That is a serious error. In a similar vein, those who have grown up in antinomian churches assume that anyone who believes in obeying the law, regardless of their soteriology, have to be, has to be labeled as a Judaizer. Mm -hmm. What was a Judaizer? Could you explain what was a Judaizer and how does it differ from someone who would, uh, believes the law is binding? Well, a Judaizer was one who believed not that Christ was our Savior, but the whole system of Judaism. So it was the temple, later the synagogue. It was a pattern of obedience to certain things. It was, in a real sense, justification by law. Now, the whole emphasis of those who insist that we hold such a position is an attempt to call our position non-Christian. And yet we are emphatic on the atonement as the necessary condition of our salvation, on the fact that the law of God is satisfied by Christ in his life and death, that we keep the law not for our salvation, but for our sanctification. And Rush, there's a, a real intimate relationship between those two uh, that we need to point out. If one maintains a very low view of the law, he can't consistently maintain a high view of the atonement. No, very well put. He, in effect, denies the atonement. And today, the atonement has become increasingly an emotional affirmation, not a theological one. People will talk about being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But in too many cases, they don't know what that means. They do not take it seriously enough to say, what does Christ do? And what is my response to what he does? And it's sort of rush, isn't it? A sentimental born-againism. You know, I have taken Jesus home with me, and that's the only thing that's important. Yes. yes, it's ignorant. I have more than once found that people who talk about being saved by the blood of Jesus who don't know what they are saying. So among other things, <laughs> far from opposing the grace 
revealed in Jesus Christ and the Word of God by upholding the law, we're upholding the grace of God. We're upholding the atonement. Exactly. We uphold the necessity uh, for grace. We uphold the necessity of upholding the whole system of God's Word. Because if you deny one part of it, you deny it all. Yes. If you deny the law, you deny grace. Yes. Well, that's a summary of what we believe, and there's much more we could say. Let's move on to another topic so we can uh, get through a number of these. Because we believe, Rush, that the Word of God should apply to all of life, we obviously believe it should apply to, uh, to the political realm. Yes. Because of that, some people have gotten the impression that we believe that that politics is somehow central in life, and the only important thing for Christians to do is is get people elected to political office and to capture the apparatus of the state, and uh, that really is the main thing Christian Reconstruction is all about. When, as a matter of fact, anybody who's read our writings knows that that's not our position. Yes. The attitude of too many people today, if analyzed, is we can be saved by politics. And every presidential election uh, is run as though it were a plan of salvation, and that if we elect uh, the candidate of this or that party, America is going to be saved. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Politics is not our salvation. Only Jesus Christ is. And what has happened is that Politics increasingly has taken the center of the stage. We have people today of various persuasions theologically who come to believe that uh, unless we vote for their candidate, there is no hope for America. Well, there is no hope for the United States apart from Jesus Christ. It does not depend on this or that candidate. While this or that candidate might be better than the one in office, they are not saviors. They do not hope, uh, offer us the hope of regeneration. Only Jesus Christ does. We have been pursuing too many false doctrines of regeneration political and religious. It's interesting you brought up that word, Rush. One thing years ago that impressed me about your writing was your absolute distinction between regeneration and revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, those who have abandoned hope in the yes. faith must uh, have a recourse to revolution or changing yes. man by politics and by bloodiness and wars and so forth. But we as Christians don't, as consistent Christians, don't hold that view. We believe that men are fundamentally changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Yes. But since, uh, well, the French Revolution, man's hope has basically been salvation by politics, by revolution, by war. And uh, the Marxists, indeed, have come to believe that man's hope is war and revolution. It's interesting, too, in Politics of Guilt and Pity you and other places, but there you... Uh, you point out that this is certainly not true only of the left, that there are a lot of oh, so-called yeah. conservatives and those on the right that hold a very similar Yes, they do. View. They simply believe that their side offers salvation. 
And uh, this really is a denial of the faith, and uh, certainly a denial of what Chalcedon holds with respect to uh, with respect to to politics. Um, yes, in fact, while I do believe politics has its place in the Christian life, I have made clear repeatedly over the years that politics as we see it today is anti-Christian. Just briefly, Rush, tell us in two, a couple of major ways in which that is true. Why is it anti-Christian? It offers a rival plan of salvation. Salvation is going to come through changing the laws, changing those in office by a complete revision of our form of government as though it was not the people but the government where sin resides. Now, sin is what we need to be saved from. And it is people who are essentially the sinners in society. So that what we have to do is convert people before we can have a regenerate society. You cannot have a regenerate society by voting for Republicans, Democrats, or anybody else. And you put it well when you say we believe in conversion, not coercion. Yes. That's the way man has changed. Yes. Well, let's move on uh, on this side of the tape to one more uh, topic. Uh, one of your great contributions, Rush, is to demonstrate, and you have well over the years, that the faith applies far beyond the church, the institutional church. Some people have turned that around and have attacked us, saying, well, because you believe in the advancement of the kingdom, you don't believe in the church. But as a matter of fact, there are many sound churches. We wish there were more, but mm -hmm. there are many sound churches in the country and fine pastors who preach the gospel and train their people in the faith and advance the kingdom. So the issue is not that we do not believe in the church, but that we believe that the kingdom of God is much wider than the church. Exactly. It is a serious error to limit salvation to the individual and maybe the church and to forget that when we are saved our homes must be saved the society around us must be changed that every area of life and thought must be brought into captivity to Christ as King yeah, we should point out too this is certainly not something that uh, we at Chalcedon invented we, of course, we believe the Bible teaches it, and, and scholars uh, earlier like, uh, well, Calvin and especially men like Kuiper and others, though certainly not perfect in all points, recognize that the important thing is the kingdom of God. They believe in sphere sovereignty. Yes. And that's a very important fact, isn't it? It is. It is a recognition that the kingdom of God is not confined to one sphere, which then has the power to rule over all spheres, but is every sphere of life when brought under the uh, leadership of God and captivity to Christ. And as we look at it, the, the two main spheres that have tended historically to alternate in dominating all the others have, of course, been the state, obviously, mm -hmm. and at other times in the medieval era, for example, in the Byzantine Empire, the church. Yes. And uh, there's nothing wrong with the state, obviously, as long as it's bound to its limits, nor the church, as long as they're limited to their own spheres. Yes. Well, what we need to do is to Christianize every sphere of life and thought. Then we can truly have a Christian society. 
Now, some seem to feel that uh, the faith is to be restricted only to the individual. Well, that's an error. It extends beyond that. When we are Christianized, then our families, our work, the world around us must reflect that Christianization. And Rush, it's a greatly decentralized social order. There's, we don't believe yes. the powers in church bureaucracies or state bureaucracies. No, we don't. But it grows out of individual self-government and uh, godly families. Yes. And, and that's why it is so important for us to reestablish the uh, importance of these other institutions. We are Christianizing education now. The Christian school and homeschool are very, very important. We've got to do this step by step to every sphere. Now, at one time, uh, when I was very young, there were various signs that businessmen had, uh, which they put up in the place of their business to indicate the kingship of Christ, the lordship over all their life, including their business. Those have disappeared. And the idea very clearly today too often is as one of our men a few years ago found when we tried to put out a copy of the journal on Christianity and business, the response of very prominent Christian men in the business world was, what has Christianity to do with my company or my business? And that really, operationally, is a denial of the faith. It's saying that Christ doesn't have yes. jurisdiction over business. That's right. He is not king overall. I was talking recently with some of our supporters, Rush, a fine family. Uh, they go to a, a sort of a, a basically orthodox um, uh, reformed congregation. They were complaining, though, that while the doctrine is, is generally sound, the whole vision of the church is simply within the church itself. Yes. Uh, I, and of course I told them that that's just uh, a pervasive error all over the country. It is a very serious error. The Christian faith is applicable to every sphere of life and thought. And if it is not, we are denying it. Would you comment briefly on a lot of people have criticized Calcedon and other such organizations as being parachurch organizations. Would you comment on the term parachurch? Well, the term parachurch is a very recent one, and it is a way of denying really a Christian character to various areas of activity outside the church. It's not a valid term. In fact, as one very fine thinker has said, the church today is becoming a parachurch, and some of these so-called parachurch areas are now more truly the church, more widespread in their application of the faith than is the traditional church. Rush, several years ago, when I was pastoring in Ohio, I received a letter from an individual, and I'm summarizing it now, but the writer said, Sandlin, the problem with you and Rushduni and Calcedon and people like that is that you believe that by the, your own strength and power, you're going to bring in the kingdom of God. Well, you're not doing a very good job of it. 
and that's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns to earth anyway. Uh, I think people really misunderstand the postmillennialism we hold, that it's a, obviously a work of God, a supernatural postmillennialism. Yes. You care to comment on that? Yes. First of all, they are assuming not salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ and the conversion of people, but by the second coming. And they act as though there's no hope for the world, no hope for humanity, unless Christ comes again. Now, that's misrepresenting Scripture. Well, we have to recognize that our salvation is entirely the work of Jesus Christ. His atoning blood redeems us. His atoning blood lays down the conditions of victory, namely that only by the atonement will men be made whole, be born again, and only as that is spread by the church across the face of the earth are we going to see a redeemed humanity. So we have a task to promote the faith from pole to pole. It seems to me that these people so stress the second coming of Christ that they often de-emphasize the power of the first coming of Christ. Very well put. That's exactly what they do. And I have known men who've tried to convert people more to the second coming <laughs> than to the atonement, the first coming. And that is strange. It's interesting. Uh, several weeks ago, on one of the major cable channels, there was a whole program, two-hour-long two program on the rapture. Mm. In fact, one of the leading ones interviewed was Hal Lindsey, whom we mm. talked about earlier. And what struck me about it, among other things, was the very thing that you mentioned. There was all of this talk about apocalyptic fervor and, you know, earthquakes and, uh, yes. and uh, signs of crosses and everything indicating that Christ would soon appear in the heavens, and uh, almost no discussion whatsoever about Christ's atonement and the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer and in the church and in the kingdom of God. Very well put. The atonement is not properly emphasized today. And the second coming is overemphasized. The atonement is central to our faith because only so are we redeemed from our sins. Only so do we become a new creature in Christ. Only so are we capable of effecting the righteousness God expects of his church. Wouldn't it be fair to say too, Rush, that the second coming in some ways is like God's great exclamation point at the end of history. It's simply the outworking of the advancement of the kingdom of God in history. Yes. And at the, end of the, uh, at the end of that advancement, then Christ comes to earth, and there is, of course, the final resurrection and the final judgment and then the institution of the eternal state. But uh, I think that fact is really misunderstood, as though the second coming is somehow cataclysmic and totally discontin uh, discontinuous with what's happening in the present world. Yes, and when... I was a child, the emphasis on the second coming began to spread throughout the church. Up until then, the emphasis was on being born again. And I can recall how to older people who were hearing this new stress as though our salvation depended on our proper eschatology, uh, the shock with which they viewed it. It seemed to them like another gospel, 
they had been saved by the preaching of Christ as our Redeemer. Now it was Christ's second coming. And you know, an, an almost infallible mark of those people, it's almost ironic that they criticize us because most of them have this obsession with all sorts of technical charts and they have been able to figure out every last meaning of all of the symbolism in Daniel and Revelation and what yes. every toe stands for and what every toenail on the toe stands for and all this. Uh, but really, that's not where the emphasis uh, is in the Word of God at all. It's, it's a strongly ethical emphasis. Very well put. It means we are changed. We are no longer sinners, but as members of Jesus Christ, we are the moral force of history. And anything that detracts from that is a falsification of the faith. Amen. What a lot of that thinking is assuming is that if you're post-millennial, you believe man's doing it by his own might. Right. And that if God's going to do anything, he's going to have to just clean up the whole mess and end it all. That that's pretty much the limits of God's power. But that we don't believe, as post-millennials, that it's done by the power of God. That somehow they believe in the power of God to set all things right, but we must not believe in the power of God in a post-millennial vein. Uh, in a similar vein, I've heard amillennialists say that they just can't see post-millennialism. They can't see things getting better. They can't see. And in other words, if they can't visualize it, it must be outside the power of God. If they can't see some sign of it happening now, they can't believe that God could cause every knee to bow and every mm -hmm. tongue confess. That, that just somehow that can't happen because of what they believe about man. They have a stronger belief, I think, about man than they do about God. That's right. When I was young, I can recall the emphasis on eschatology coming in. Post-millennialism had faded. Amillennialism had not yet spread. Premillennialism was becoming a strong emphasis and to many an older person it came as a shock it was as though the church had developed another plan of salvation as though things were required of them that uh, had never been required of them before as though salvation depended on believing certain things about the second coming now it is important to understand that there is a second coming, what it implies. But our salvation is through the atonement Christ wrought on the cross. And anything that de-emphasizes that is dangerous. In addition to that, I'll never forget something that, you, Rush, you said years ago, just so succinctly and powerfully. You said the fundamentalists believe in God but not in history. The liberals believe in history but not in God. Yes. As Christians, we have to believe in both. Yes. History is God's plan as it is worked out in time for his people, the area in which they are to demonstrate the meaning of God's kingdom, the meaning of Christ's salvation. And anything short of that is a failure on the part of the church. So we cannot deny the sphere of history and to be faithful Christians. No, we cannot. Rush, let's move on, uh, though we could spend a long time there. Uh, we strongly oppose a bureaucratic and centralized state 
the state, uh, as it were, God walking the earth. Because of that, some people have accused us of believing in anarchy, and uh, some, for example, have made the accusation that our ideas basically put in people's heads that they can get their guns and st go start shooting, you know, uh, uh, the governor or the president or some political figures, and yet that's a total slander of what we believe. Totally a slander. We believe that salvation is through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Those who are the redeemed of God then have an obligation to bring every area of life and thought into captivity to Christ. We do not believe that salvation is by the state nor by the church, but by God alone through Christ. Therefore, we must strongly emphasize Christ's redeeming work, the necessity of proclaiming Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, the fallacy of the modern evangelical church is that Christ is not proclaimed as Lord, only as Savior. In fact, one uh, otherwise, I think, very fine Christian institution of higher learning a few years back made it a heresy to affirm Christ as Lord before the second coming. Well, how can he be our Savior now if he is not also Amen. Lord of history, right. Lord of all things? So we believe that social change does not come through guns and bombs but through the power of the Spirit of God, through people applying the faith, obeying God's law in their own lives, in their own families, and their own churches, and as more and more people are converted and reorient their lives, then we have a great change in society. Whenever in the history of the Western world there has been a great change, a vast improvement, there's been one reason, the faith. The proclamation of Christ as Lord, Christ as King, has affected men and nations and redirected all of them. If they lose that faith, then we stray. The modern world, Rush, is obsessed with violence. Um, if there's a disagreement, it can be solved only with the barrel of a gun. And Of course, Mao Zedong even made a similar comment, you know, that the power of the state grows out of the barrel of the gun and yes. so forth. Well, that's a total... Um, uh, in total opposition to the Bible, which speaks of the yes. gospel as the gospel of peace. I mean, godly people are peaceful people. Yes, and we are the people who are summoned to proclaim this worldwide conquest through Christ, not through the barrel of a gun. Amen. Not through politics, certainly. Amen. Another point, Raj, that I think we need to make Sometimes it is uh, charged that because we believe in biblical law, some people say, well, if you folks would ever gain political power, you would sort of persecute everyone who did not agree with you. Well, actually, we've never said any such thing. We do indeed believe in the authority of the law. But as you pointed out time and time again, the civil law in the Word of God is actually a very small part of the Word yes. of God. Yes. When you go through the law of God, you find that very little is given to church or state to enforce. Primarily, we enforce it in our own lives so that it is the closest thing to a libertarian society that you can have. And the early uh, libertarians recognized that of the Bible. 
And they didn't like it, of course. And we need to make clear that a Christian state does not mean that the design of the state or role of the state is to make people Christians. That's the role of the Spirit of God yes. and the, the church and Christians preaching the gospel. It's, it's other religions, Islam, for example, and other that try to force people to, uh, to convert to their position by means of the sword and guns. That's not a Christian position at all. Emphatically not. Rush, another, and this is, for some reason, I don't know why it is, this seems to have become uh, perhaps the most widespread and intense charge of the last five years, at least as far as I've been able to determine, and that is that somehow uh, we at Cal Seton are those who hold our position as anti-Semitic. Uh, I've never been able to understand the basis for that. Well, if you don't like a person, you accuse him of certain things, and one of them is anti-Semitic. Now, that is an especially ridiculous charge, given the fact that my appeal in many circles, Jewish circles, is precisely the fact that I do stress God's law. The Old Testament is not an obsolete book, and especially uh, Jewish converts to Christianity are most appreciative of what I've had to write. So this is, as so many charges, uh, slander. It has no meaning. He's, I guess we call the uh, Judaizing anti-Semitic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an we, we can get you coming and going. Yeah, it's interesting. I wrote an article in a report some years ago, a couple of years ago, and I pointed out if there is any racism at all in the Word of God, it's uh, the race of uh, the new Adam versus the race of the old Adam. Yes. That's the only sort of racism that we uh, yeah. believe in, and, and uh, that's the only racial discrimination that God believes in. That's right. Uh, the issue is not one of color or a physical race, but of those who are of the true Israel or that's right. the Church of Jesus Christ. The whole... The whole charge of anti-Semitism, uh, racism, is such a powerful one that people are so afraid of it, they don't, won't think it through. And we just got finished fighting a war in the Balkans that was pushed by our president and endorsed, but basically accepted by the American people with very little protest because he said it was against racial genocide. Mm -hmm. And nobody wanted to oppose it too vociferously Absolutely. because they didn't want to be seen as supporting racial genocide. But so he knew, he knew exactly how to promote that war. But if it were religious genocide, that would have been another issue. And we have so many examples mm -hmm. in the 20th century of, of course, I'm putting genocide there in quotation marks, that is destruction of people because of their religious beliefs. Which would is have been really what that war, the conflict in the Balkans is more about. Yes. Religious conflict than it yes. is racial conflict. But he never could have sold that publicly, sold no. the war on that basis. No, that's, that's precisely true. And the fact is there are evil Jews and evil Gentiles and evil blacks and evil Orientals. The problem is sin. The problem is not race. Exactly. Rush, another point, and we could go a, a long time on that, but <clears throat> I've, I've heard the accusation that because we at Chalcedon stress sound, relevant scholarship, uh, we aren't really interested in practical things, and basically all you should be talking about, some say, is just a sort of a private walk with the Lord, and, mm -hmm. and uh, how we can uh, have better families and so forth, not understanding that the faith is designed to govern area, every area of life, and that we've denied the faith if we don't address those issues. Yes. 
I think you will find that those who follow our position read the Bible more than those who do not, believe it more than those who do not, are resolute in their belief that salvation is by Christ, not by race or heritage or anything else. Now, I think this is important because our world is becoming more and more fragmented in terms of race. Instead of decreasing, it has in the past century or two steadily increased. It shows every evidence of increasing more when you consider that candidates for the presidency who differ with the standard liberal political cliches are accused of being anti-Semitic when they've never mentioned uh, the Jews. They are accused of a number of things that they never have discussed. It is held to be implicit in any thoroughly Christian perspective. If you want to slander anyone, simply these days call them anti-Semitic. There's one noted and Christian political candidate that some of you will know listening to the tape who wrote a book recently questioning whether the United States should have uh, entered World War II, or at least at the time that it did. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's basically opposing the United States' messianic designs. And uh, immediately he was in his own party, not in, outside, but in his own party, attacked for being anti-Semitic. That's a very frequent sort of charge. Yes. And it is as totally false as can be. His book's purpose is to call attention to the fact that we have drifted from being a republic to being an empire. Uh, the recent, one of the recent issues of the Chalcedon Report was on this topic of internationalism. Um, we have indeed, especially, especially in this century, Russia, we not become a radically internationalist uh, yes. nation. And that really uh, bodes poorly uh, for the future because the Bible is strongly, the Bible is pro-localistic. Yes. Well, we have come to believe in salvation by politics, and therefore as the number one political power in the world, we are going to save the world. And uh, increasingly, our political leaders in both parties see their role in salvationist terms. We have the power, therefore we can do it. Well. Having the power does not mean that we have a good uh, beneficial usage of that power because very often certain types of power when used are harmful. In politics, the use of power increasingly becomes the source of evil. Recently in Newsweek magazine, Tony Blair, the evangelical prime minister, so-called evangelical prime minister in England, made a, a remarkably revealing statement. He says, after this recent war in Kosovo, this sends a message to all of these rogue states out there. If they don't act the way that we want them to act, they're not going to get away with it. Of course, implying that we'll bomb them into submission. Well, my brother and sister-in-law have just returned from that area. And as they described it yesterday, we are regarded as the great evildoers. And uh, Milosevic stands second to Clinton in the estimation of the peoples there. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard about uh, some of those polls taken 
And in fact, apparently a poll in Greece was taken about that. Who is the greater war criminal? And most people in Greece, according to the poll, felt that Clinton was a greater war criminal than that's, that's Clinton. That's true. That's very true. And they're, association, they're associating now the United States with Satanism because they believe Clinton is satanic in what he did in that war. And because he has high favorable um, ratings from the American people, they think there's something very satanic about the United States, which goes a little beyond the suspicion people have about our motives or our foreign policy. It shows that, that people think there's something very evil in what the United States is all about in its State Department and its foreign policy. Underlying all of that policy is a godless antinomian idea that Mike makes right, that since yeah. we're the most powerful nation, we can force our will on other nations. And of course, that's a godless uh, premise. And that is why Christ is abandoned in the political thinking of these nations. Yes. Well, we talked a little bit earlier about how people think that we must be statists and want to control the power of the state. Because humanism inevitably means a powerful state. Because somebody sooner or later is going to say, I represent the people, or I represent more people than you do, and I'm doing this in the name of humanity, in the name of the people, or the will of the people what have you, and they speak for the, the masses, mm. and they use the power of government mm. to, in effect, claim to enforce the will of the people. So mm. people tend to think that way, they think we think that way, but it, it's, it's one of the evil things about humanism, it, it ends in a very powerful state, which usually ends in the power, like you said, power you know, from the, the barrel of a gun. Well, sometimes it comes from a barrel of guns, sometimes it comes in, in missiles from airplanes. Right. But it often ends up in sheer shows of force to say, my will must be done. That's true, Mark. You know, I, we're concluding here in just a moment, but uh, Rush, I'll never forget an essay that was published in the journal back, oh, I think 25 years ago now. In fact, one of the best essays of yours I've read. The title was Power From Below. And uh, that really is a good description of the modern world, uh, who has abandoned uh, faith in the power of God and the gospel and wants to gain power from within history by their own human means. And that really is a summary of, of what we've been talking yes. about here. Yes. We are looking for some kind of anti-Christian source of power. We have denied that God and Christ can be a force in history. And so we're going to have another way of saving the world. Well, we're down to the last minute or two. Are there any final comments uh, that uh, anyone would like to make? No, thank you. Well, God bless you. Thank you very much for listening.